0: I have a question for you. How many of you have ever lost your driver's license before or passport? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a good, a good group, isn't it? Yeah. About half of us have. The other half of you are trying to remember. Yeah, I know. It's a, been a long, hot day. We had a family member who um, was about to travel on an international trip and got to the airport and discovered that they had taken the old passport, like the one that expired, and had thrown the new one away. Now, isn't that efficient? Don't confuse yourself if you have an expired passport and a new one, right? Throw one of them away. One problem. Throw the expired one away. I'll tell you, there was a panic in our family. There was a rush off to the, uh, what do you call that building? Federal building. There was a day delay. There was a big deal. Man, when you lose something important, there's a panic, right? All of your attention goes right there. It was a couple of years ago, I was working on my dissertation and I had heard these horror stories of uh, authors who have just gotten their whole deal written. You've heard these, right? And they lose the whole thing and start over again. I had nightmares about that. And while I was working on the dissertation, I would save it. I would save it studiously. I'd save it to the hard drive, to a thumb drive. I'd save it to an external drive. I would email it to my editor and in uh, uh, Tennessee, I would email it to myself and got copies. I flooded everybody's inboxes. There was, I was obsessed with not losing that thing because it was so valuable to me. Imagine that you're a document that God has been working on forever, and he is perfecting it to be something that is beautiful that will last as long as him and that will sound and taste so delicious and wonderful that he will brag on you for everlasting life. And that document is inadvertently dragged off the desktop into the trash bin. Worthless, gone, disappeared, wasted, discarded. And God somehow reaches into that trash bin and pulls you back on to the screen so that you can, in all of your intended beauty, be something to express His grace and love and glory for eternities to come. That's the story tonight that we're going to take a look at in this series, God Can, as we talk about God Can Save, the biggest recovery project in the cosmos that God included you in. We're going to take a look at Ephesians. This book Paul wrote, as far as we know, a probably about two years or so before he was killed for his faith in Rome. He was probably imprisoned in Rome. This is a church that he had a really close relationship with. He hadn't technically started it, but there was a handful of believers there, and he ended up being about three years in that town, longer than he he spent anyplace else. And so he had a relationship with these people, and apparently he heard a rumor about them. And I'm so glad that they messed up. Aren't you glad people in the New Testament messed up? Because all the good stuff that we've got is them getting fixed. So it's really a wonderful thing here. They were starting to mess up. Some of the people thought they were better than the other people that were in the church. And so they were starting to separate and divide themselves. Apparently, there were Jews who were coming to faith in Messiah Jesus. And there were Gentiles in Ephesus that had already come to faith in Jesus. And there was tension between these two groups. Each group probably felt a little superior to the other ones. I mean, they were a little more right, right? That's how it works. The Jews were more right because, after all, they were God's chosen people. They came to faith in Christ the Messiah. The Gentiles felt that they were a little more right because the Jews thought they should have to become Jews first before they could become believers. And the Gentiles really had it right. It's all about just believing directly in Jesus. The result was that the church was starting to separate, just like in this church. If there's a separate, separate aisle here, and on the way in over here, it says... The people who think they're right in this way and the people who think they're right in this way. And a division was started to happen in the church. That's why in this book, you read words like one and unity over and over and over again. What Paul is about to say in Ephesians chapter 2 to the whole group, I'm paraphrasing and I'm making it brief, is none of you are better than the others. You all started out the same stinking mess in the bottom of the same stinking garbage can, And if it wasn't for Jesus being gracious to you, you'd still be in there together. So listen, folks, get along and start doing the work you were supposed to do. Well, that was the paraphrase. Let's read the real deal, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1 through verse 10 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the Prince who is now, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I'm going to pause. So there, he says, that's who you all were. And then he says in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 4. It is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's what he says. Well, I'm not glad for them, but I'm kind of glad for us that they messed up. Got it wrong. Some of them thought they were better than the others, and they started dividing because it gave the Apostle Paul an opportunity to write Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture to us that beautifully, in a few sentences, gives us the very essence of what God is all about in loving each of us. God can save. You know, around here, we like to interpret Scripture from the beginnings, and tonight we're going to take a little bit of a look right from the very beginning of the Old Testament. And then we're going to take a glimpse at the very beginning of the Gospels. And then we're going to look at the very beginning of the church in Acts to get a picture of what it means for God to be the Savior. And we're going to ask and answer three questions. First, saved from what? And second, saved to what? And finally, saved how? How? So let's take a look at the first one, saved from what? The first three verses in another version in the message say this. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin, and you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live, and you filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it all of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us were in the same boat. Isn't it a wonder that God didn't just lose his temper with us and do away with a whole lot of us? He says, we all started in the same place. In fact, we read in the NIV that we were all by nature deserving of wrath. That's where we started from. And so we asked this question. So If the Savior came, He came to save us from what? The word Savior means technically to rescue. Apparently there was a condition that we were in that was so desperate that someone outside of us needed to do the rescue thing to save us from that dangerous condition. And what was the condition? Paul is very clear here. It's sin. It's a three-letter word. It's as short as it gets, and it's as powerful and disruptive as any force in the universe. The problem was sin. The solution was God's forgiveness, and the solution was a Savior coming to save us from this sin mess. So let's go to the very beginning and take a look at this Savior thing from the start. God's big story can be summarized in four words. Let's take a look at the first two from the beginning. The first one is creation. You read about it in Genesis 1 and 2, and it was spectacular. If you want to know what we're being saved to, take a look at what God originally created. Relationships, astounding. Things of beauty and intricacy and color and harmony. Relationship with God, with the first humans, was absolutely open and honest and authentic. God would come and would talk with them and walk with them. Can you imagine that? It was just God coming to meet with this male and this female. Absolutely open relationship with God. Created beauty. And then this first relationship between the human, two, first two human beings, male and female, they were created. But this male and this female were so one that they actually had the same name. And they were so together that they were naked and they weren't ashamed. Physically and also metaphorically speaking of the transparency in their relationship. There was no secrets at all from each other. There wasn't even a sense that there would be anything that I would want to hide from another person. And how about the relationship of humans with nature? It was, it was something beyond our imagination. In fact, the beauty of the humans in the Garden of Eden was expressed in a way that the humans were given a stewardship responsibility. But there was some kind of a harmony thing happening that, well, they didn't have to work very hard in the garden. It was beautiful harmony. You get the picture here. Words escape and memory, uh, imagination fails to help us form how gorgeous creation was but it was open relationship with God, harmonious relationship among humans, and a beautiful synergistic relationship with creation itself. That was God's intent. And when God, who is 100% goodness, looked at what he had created, he said, that's, would you say the two words with me? Very good. That's where it all started. Crashing in on this beautiful harmony is a destructive thing called sin. We refer to it often as the fall. And it all crashed down, shattering and splintering into broken pieces. The relationship with God that was so open now became something to hide from. And the man and the woman, they ran to the trees to try to get away from God coming down and talking with them. All of a sudden, they felt distance from Him because the prophet Isaiah much later says, the wages of sin is death. And what is death? It's the separation of life from whatever was the body. The result of sin was immediate separation that man and woman tried to hide from God. The relationship with Him was no longer open. The man and the woman all of a sudden, it dawned on them that they they didn't want to share everything with each other. Their relationship was separated. They, they tried to cover their bodies with these fig leaves. How goofy is that? Because now there was a sense of shame. They lost their oneness. They, they didn't have the intimacy. They couldn't disclose each other to everything to each other. And then, of course, there was the broken relationship with nature that just went sideways. In fact, this is what God says when He comes. Because the... The result of sin is always death and separation. God is absolutely just. We sang about it in one of these great songs today. God has to act out His justice, and if sin has created separation, God has to validate that, and He did. And He drove them from the garden, this place of beautiful harmony with nature, and He placed a curse upon the involved parties. So the snake, the snake got a bad deal, right? The serpent lost its legs, apparently, and had to slither around ever since. They, the man got his own curse. The woman got a curse. You say, well, what's this deal? Did God just get mad and have a bad day and make a mess of things? No. God, in perfect justice, looked on what he had made that was very good, and very good became very bad in a moment of sin and disobedience. And God said, this is how that's going to look. What does the curse include? The curse included... A broken relationship between the man and the woman. Whereas before they were one, this is what one translation says happened in the curse. Quoting from God. And you, he says to the woman, you'll desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. What does that sound like? Marital strife, right? Competition, right? One wanting their own way over the other, right? Where did that come from? Where did this distance come from? Where did this sense of need to create relational hierarchies through social order and structure from the fall of sin henceforth come from? Trying to make sense out of relationships that used to be harmonious and now are so damaged that both try to compete over the other. And finally, culture says one of you is going to dominate over the other. And men and women and cultural strata have been taking positions of dominance ever since. It's a part of the curse. And what happened with the relationship of humans with the earth? Well, the ground was cursed. And all of a sudden, thorns began to spring forth. And where Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, had been given stewardship over a beautiful, harmonious creation, now it would be with their sweat and their toil and fighting against the resistance of hard ground and thorns that they would eke out a living. That's the fall. And why is it described in these terms for us from the beginning? To give us a picture of this. We need to be saved from sin. That's the culprit that started this whole mess. And unless we're saved from sin, the rest of the stuff doesn't get saved either. The rest of the stuff was broken because of sin. It's only when sin is dealt with that the rest of the stuff can be reconciled and brought back to order. That's why the fall is the big deal. And that's why I think when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at at Ephesus that was experiencing this struggle and separation, we're better and more right than you. No, we're better and more right than you. Instead of saying, why don't you just all be nice and get along? What was his topic? Sin. Sin. You guys got to go to the real heart of this thing. And so in the beginning, we see that the salvation story starts with the creation and with the fall. Which brings us to this great question then about we're saved to to what? Okay, I'm saved from something. What am I saved to? And Paul gets excited about it. I'm going to read from the message here, verses four to seven. It says, Instead, immense mercy and with incredible love God embraced us and He took us from our sin dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did this all on His own with no help from us. And He picked us up and He set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now, God had us right where He wanted us with all the time in the world and in the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus? You see, saving us was all his idea and all his work, and all we do is trust him enough to let him do it. Wow. Saved to what? Let's go to the first part of the New Testament, the Gospels. You remember that an angel came to Joseph, who was the fiancée of Mary. She was pregnant. They were trying to make sense out of this thing. She was carrying the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's Son. Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph? He said, go ahead and take Mary as your wife. And then he said this, And you are to name him, the Son, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Savior. God shouted his redemption story in the naming of, of Mary's son, Jesus. Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means to save, to heal, to restore, to make soul, to make whole. And right from the beginning of the New Testament story in the Gospels, we're introduced to this great Savior, which brings us then to the next part of God's big story. There's creation, there's the fall and the third of four pieces is reconciliation. This Jesus, God's Son, born as a baby, that came to be the Savior, was the one in the entire universe that could be the bridge from our broken place of sin over to the restored relationship with God Himself. And in the reconciliation story, all that was broken apart in the fall could be put back together, reconciled. And so Jesus came to through forgiveness for our sins to begin reversing this devastation process and make it a restoration process, reconciliation. So what does that look like? When I ask Jesus to forgive my sin, when I believe in him as Savior and Lord, as Many, most of you have. Some of you may make that decision tonight. It's the beginning of a wonderful relationship where now instead of running from God or being distant from God, I'm growing in a relationship with God. And that's being put back together. He wants to come walk and talk with us. And we learn more and more how to do that and be with Him and hear His voice and follow His leadership. You're being reconciled to God and restored in a relationship with him. And how about the brokenness among human beings that was so devastating and obvious in the fall? Jesus came to restore relationships. That's why he can say to this church, these different groups of the church at Ephesus, I want you to act out your unity and your oneness together because you can be restored together. It's why Paul in this great theological verse in Galatians chapter 3 talks about the brokenness of social order where people compete to be over others. And he says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female. What's he saying? In Christ there is the writing of relationships to the order of God's original intention of beauty and harmony and oneness. And how about being restored to nature? Have you noticed that there's still thorns? Yeah. And if you go blackberry picking, we got to do that this week with our granddaughters. We, we noticed that there's, there's something between us and the very best blackberries. A bunch of thorns, right? Yeah, there's still thorns. Most of us still sweat when we work, don't we? It's, we're not quite there yet, are we? But... Did you know as we come to god's fourth big idea in his story that even nature is going to be restored in some beautiful way and this is what we call this biblical term glorification it's when God eventually recreates in a way that so something is called the new heaven and the new earth and it is going to reflect the glory of God, that's why it's called glorification. God in His glory, and what does God's glory look like? It looks like goodness, and what does it sound like? It's very good. And even Paul writes to us in Galatians, excuse me, in Romans chapter eight, that right now all of creation is groaning as it looks forward to the liberated creation in the future of things which is why we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is not a vacant prayer. Jesus would not have taught us to pray something that could not be realized. It is absolutely God's intention to restore the beauty of his original creation. So Paul writes to a church and they got a big center aisle and these guys sit on this side and these guys sit on this side and they're acting like they used to act. They're acting like one's better than the other. They're acting like for some reason God should love one side better than the other side. And Paul says, let's get this right. You all started in the same place, broken and desperate and needy and sinful by nature, deserving of God's wrath. And I would imagine that there were some folks at the church of Ephesus that said, that's true about them over there on that side. They were a real mess. I knew them, but not me. Paul says, no, all of us shared the same human need. And by nature, we deserve God's judgment. And then he says, but God made an offering to all of you to bring you to a whole new place. So guess what? You all started out at the bottom of the same trash bin and now you all have the same opportunity because of God's work to go to the same place. And the same place is seated with Christ, hidden in Christ. God the Father looks at the right hand and sees His Son Jesus. He sees Him perfect and holy and sinless and right inside of Jesus is you. That's what the picture that's being given. So that God now relates to you in Christ just as though sin and the fall had never happened happened for you. And now you're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Well, what do you think is going to happen in heaven? I hope it's not harps. I'm not really a harp guy. I hope I don't sit on clouds. That doesn't sound fun to me. And I hope we don't just sing forever. I love music, but all the time, I don't know. You know, the images of heaven don't all work for me. But I do know one very interesting thing that's going to happen in heaven. We read about it here. God's going to line you up, and I'm going to hopefully join you, and for the rest of everlasting eternity future, God's going to show you off. (laughs) He's going to point to others. Who are they being? I don't know. Angels, other created beings. God's not done. He has a lot of time. Martians. I don't know if they were preceded us or whatever, but all these other kinds of beings. that I don't know. That Martian rover thing is up there checking it out right now. You know, who knows? But (laughs) whatever God does in all of His wildest dreams, past, present, or future, there's going to be one special category of creation. Special, unique, unprecedented, never again repeated, His most dramatic trophy display. The redeemed ones. You. You're going to be God's show-off. You're going to be His kids. Because there will not be any other created being, race or species or whatever in all of eternity that God will give His own Son to die for. There cannot be any act of God more supreme than sending His Son Jesus to live and die and rise again in our place. And forever the story will be the still imprinted scars in Jesus' hand of nail prints And God pointing to you and saying, it's because of you, and you, and you, and you. You're the redeemed ones. That's the story. I can imagine that uh, the Jews and the Greeks in the grand metropolitan city of Ephesus, in what became, in the first century, the largest church of any city in the Roman world, may have kind of looked down a little sheepishly when they read these 10 verses from Paul, don't you think? (laughs) Doesn't all that put our small pettiness stuff in perspective? I mean, really. He says, listen, I could have told you to just get along and be nice, but I want to tell you what this is really all about. Being God's trophy display case of how he reached down and intervene, and rescued us from inside out, from start to finish, from spirit, soul, to body, to restore relationship with him and with others, and even all of creation itself. Grand, God's grand story. So let's wrap it up with this. So how does this work? Saved how? Which is what we're going to start from the third beginning in the Bible, which is the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is filled with wonderful stories of how people came to faith in Jesus. Let's just mention a couple. Most of you are probably familiar with them. The very first one was the day of Pentecost, this grand religious Jewish feast when tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people would flood into Jerusalem from all around the Roman Empire. And Peter stands up on this day of Pentecost. He's filled with the Spirit and this guy, who was a fisherman that never had much formal training or education, stood and preached a phenomenal message. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. And the message was simply the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And there was, such, there was such a conviction going on in people's lives that they said to Peter and the other leaders, they said, Brothers, what must we do to be saved? They asked the same question. How does this thing work? And Peter said, <laughs> he said, well, what you must be do is that you must repent and you must be baptized for the remissions of your sin. And so that day, there was about 3,000 people that repented. That means to turn around. If I've entirely gone my own way and I hear about Jesus' way, I repent by turning around and I decide to do it Jesus' way. So it says they believed, they repented And they believed. They believed this story. Jesus, God's Son coming, living a perfect life, dying a sinless death and rising for our forgiveness. And so about 3,000 believed that day and were baptized. That's how the church started. Hmm. The second of many stories we could tell, but just the second one is in Acts chapter 16. Paul and his sidekick Silas, they end up getting beat up really bad and thrown into jail for the night. And while they're deciding or can't sleep about midnight, and they're singing worship choruses and wishing you know, that our team was there to lead them, but probably didn't have that in the Philippian jail. All of a sudden, there's this massive earthquake, and it's so great that it literally shook the jail apart, but nobody got killed. Is that amazing or what? Now, the jailer was in a precarious situation, because back in the day, if you were a jailer and people escaped, you got to, you got to fulfill their punishment, which was a very painful road to death. And so the jailer is just freaked, and he's going to kill himself to give himself a sudden and more merciful death. And Paul stops him and says, hey, we're all here. All the prisoners are here. Big deal. We're all here. And the jailer falls on his knees and says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And Paul had been waiting for that question, right? It sounded very similar to Peter's. And they consistently, in the record of the early church, it is a very similar message. And he said to him, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your whole household will be saved. And the jailer said, okay. And he bound up their wounds and got a bunch of Band-Aids and stuff on them and made him a nice meal. And then he and his whole family were baptized. They went public. And the stories go on and on and on. Well, the problem with this story is It doesn't involve us very much, does it? Maybe you have friends. Maybe you've been there too where you've said, you know, at the end of things, this loving God really wants me to be a good person. Any of you heard this? Yeah, good person. So I really think that if over time the good things that I do outweigh the bad things that I do, then then I'm going to make it. And the big man upstairs is... I'm going to be okay. Ever heard that? Yeah. Or there's some people that just know they're flat out bad, right? And they say, well, I'm banking on God just being loving enough to, even though I've been a really bad dude, to just kind of wink and overlook that because dads can do that, right? And if he's the heavenly dad, he can probably do that. Can I just tell you that Paul just comes and throws a grenade in the middle of both of those casual worldviews and just absolutely explodes them to pieces. Because God is holy and righteous and His love is way bigger than a nod and a blank. His love cost Him the life of His Son, Jesus. And so the message that Paul brings to a church that started getting a little bit, ah, we're a little better than you, or we got it right, or we were first, or all that stuff. He says, I want you to remember where you all started. And that's where we're going to end tonight. Remembering where we all started. Here's the big deal. This is why people today are imprisoned for their faith. And they're willing to be in prison and be tortured and die for their faith in Jesus Christ because they believe this story. It's why throughout the centuries, between then and now in the church, that people have risked their lives and given their lives because they believed this story. It's why tomorrow there will be people in certain cultures that commit their lives to Christ and will immediately be entirely cut off from all of their family. And their families will do a funeral burying them, not alive, but burying them because they are now dead to their families. The only reason this story sounds sweet and nice and casual and optional to us is that we live in a culture where it's absolutely free to hear and share and accept the story or not. But this is the story that people have lived and died for so that we could hear and share with others. And it's the story that makes everything wrong potentially put back together. It's the story that I heard when I was a little kid. It's the story we celebrate around here at Evergreen men and women and students and children coming to faith in Jesus Christ and going public in that decision in water baptism. It's the big deal around here. All the other stuff is helpful other stuff, but God can save is the big deal. It was the big deal for me when I was five years old. I'd already experienced uh, hearing about Jesus and, and Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin. He's the one that lets us know that we're the bad guys. And and, and I, was a little kid, five years old, I felt that. And my mom asked me, would you like to pray and ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord and to forgive you? And I said, no, I want to get saved like Jim, my older brother. I was 12, and I would watched him go to a church, a kind of a fun church in town that was a lot rowdier than our church because we went to a mellow church. A rowdy church is fun to go to because they do all kinds of funny things. And we were a safe family. We sat in the back row so that all those people could do the goofy stuff and we could watch them. And we weren't there to mock them or make fun of them. We just... Didn't particularly want to be quite that athletic in our experience of worship. And, but, I'd seen my big brother, Jim. I saw how they did it there because they did, they did the old-time revival thing. I mean, they just turned up the heat. You thought that hell was coming right in the back door and nipping at your rear. I mean, it was everybody was sweating in there. I think they literally turned up the heat. It was always a mess, but it was a lot of fun. You know what I mean? It was a lot of fun. And... Uh, and so they had these revival meetings, things, and they'd go every night of the week, and people would go, and these, you know, outlandish, gifted public speakers would come, and they'd just whip you into a, a frenzy, and it was very cool. Well, at the end of that, they'd always do this little manipulation thing, right? Right now, close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes, they'd say. You know you know the scoop, right? They, it was steps. They'd, it was switching bait all the way along the line, right? For, for your good, for your good. Okay, everybody close your eyes and bow your head. Nobody looking around you're saying yes to Jesus tonight. You slip up your hand. Then you slip up behind, Then they got you, right? And then after they knew where all the hands were, then they'd tell everybody to look. And then they'd call you out. And they'd say, now you come down the aisle. So they, they, they kind of put you on the spot. But they get you down the aisle. And then you come down to this altar thing, this little two-by-four railing kind of a thing. And you're supposed to kneel there. And now you're kneeling and your butt's sticking out that way. And all the people out there are looking at you. And all this is very spiritual and powerful and wonderful. It is. It's how Jim got saved. And so I told my mom, I want to get saved the way Jim got saved. So it wasn't very long before, you know, the Goofy Church had another revival thing. Boy, the Roth family was right there, right in the back row, safe. And I knew the routine. Five years old, knew the routine. I know what the preacher preached that night. His message was the five fools of Sweet Home. And of course, by the time everybody, you know, by the time he got done, uh, seven fools, seven fools, by the time he got to the seventh fool, everybody in Sweet Home was a fool, right? Of course, because he just called everybody out. And one of those was, any young person that does not know Jesus Christ, you are a fool. And I said, that's me. I'm five years old. I'm processing all this. This is the real deal. That's so why I go nuts around here when little kids fall in love with Jesus. That's the real deal. It took and everything. And I'm a, I'm a fool. I'm a fool. I know that. And I knew the whole sweat and beach thing. And I had it figured out. And I knew it was manipulative. And that's how I was going to get saved. Going to be <laughs> manipulated right down to the front aisle. And I was. And so he did the whole thing. I couldn't wait for him to close the eyes and bow the head thing. My hand was the first one up. Mine was the first one up, and I know that because I was in the back row, and I was looking, and I was. I beat everyone else to the punch. But there were a lot of fools there that night in Sweet Home. More than seven of them. There were, there were quite a few fools in Sweet Home and a lot of, a lot of hands went up around there and then I knew the next deal. He'd start calling us out. He didn't have to call us out. I was the first one down the end of my little road, down the aisle thing, got to the altar thing, could hardly reach up over the top. Here's this little kid. It must have looked kind of odd. They didn't make the altar for the five year old. I'm hanging on up here and the knees are hanging down there and I'm on the altar thing and, no one knew what to do with me, so no one came down there. I'm just down there hanging on the altar, and you know, and this is what you do when you get saved like Jim does, right? Finally, my mom, she made her way down the altar, which is probably Judy the first time and only time in the Assembly of God church she ever made it from the back row to the very front. I, I think it took me being down there desperately hanging onto the altar that got my mama down there, and, and we prayed. So I don't know what your story is, but I've got to tell you, if you don't have a story, you want a story. You want a story. Because all the difference in eternity hangs on this story. It's a, it's a, it's a weird little story. It's not very impressive. Religion makes it so much grander. It's all about what you do. I'm a better person. I try harder. I know more. I came from a better background. I Whatever. That's religion. I'm good enough. God must be impressed with me now. That's religion. Just all that goes away in this little simple story. He says, you all started out in a stinking mess, bottom of the heap, discarded, broken, damaged, sin, deserving of God's wrath. We all started at the same place. There's only one place that we get anywhere else with God, and that's because of his action. Because he loved us so much. He sent his son, Jesus. He sent forgiveness. And that's the beginning. The beginning of a restored relationship with God and with one another and even with nature itself. It's the beginning of the grandest relationship in the world. It's what human history is all about. It's the big deal. Here at Evergreen, at a church that's 81 years old, we're working on our 82nd year. Not you, not me, but this church. The one thing that this community of faith has had in common over now into our ninth decade is this. The story has never changed. The priority has never changed. It's always about men, women, students, and children coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and then figuring out together how to follow Him and love Him and grow together in that relationship. I don't know where you are in the story tonight, but I know where I am. I'm just really, really grateful. Tonight, my prayer is one of gratitude. God, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for rescuing us. Maybe the point that you are in the story is the point where I was a long time ago when I was a little kid. See, it doesn't make any difference if you're 5 or 50 or 105. Don't wait that long. It's kind of scary. You're, demographically, you're kind of on the edge of things. You're me out there. It does make a difference how old you are. It makes a difference what's happening in your heart. And the Holy Spirit does his thing of saying, I'm convicting you of sin right now, bad guy, bad woman. You weren't intended to be bad. You went bad. By nature, you went bad. Every time uh, we meet here at Evergreen, we always, regardless of what the talk is about, we always give people an opportunity to to say yes to Jesus. And tonight, I'm going to invite you to say yes to Jesus in one of two ways. Tonight, some of you are saying yes to Jesus as I am. In a moment as I pray, and your yes is, oh, I'm just saying yes again. I'd say it yes again. I'm doing it all over again. Today, I say yes in a fresh way. I, I have and I do receive you. I say yes to you, Jesus. Some of you tonight, this is your first time. This is, the, this is the deciding point of eternity for you. Tonight, you're saying yes to Jesus. We don't do the walk the aisle thing, but if you want to come down here to the front, you can. So, there's no goofiness that happens here about this. But I'll tell you, some of you tonight are, you're making the most critical decision of your entire everlasting life. And the decision is not to do, but it's to receive. We are saved by faith, not by works. And even that faith is not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God so that no one can ever boast that we had much of a part in it. Isn't that a beautiful story? Would you say yes to Jesus tonight?